Good. So uh, this is a practice day. I hope to broach some of the stuff I started talking about last night. Essentially, how to translate mindfulness practice in ways that make sense for us and that do justice to the vision of this practice as outlined in early Buddhist teachings uh, that takes some translation. Some of that translation has to do with languages and some of that translation has to do with inculturation. Um, good. I'd suggest you sit upright and we'll start meditating. If you're on the floor, make sure you're comfy so that you can sit out of your hips and out of your pelvis, that you have much as much of yourself on the ground as possible. If you're sitting on chairs, I would suggest you make sure that you have both feet flat on the ground. Um, that if you uh, feel there is a few centimeters lacking, you take one of these cushions so that you're ergonomically okay. I would suggest you either put a cushion behind your small of the back and the backrest so that you can support yourself from the pelvis in the back um, and you're actually sitting out of your pelvis rather than leaning against the backrest. If you lean, make sure that there is enough of um, support in the small of your back that you can sit upright. This isn't about aesthetics, although it does admittedly look prettier if people sit upright. Um, the reason is not esoteric, the reason is the physiological. Your diaphragm, which has a major role to play in terms of breathing, is connected with your spine. Third and fourth vertebrae hold uh, your diaphragm, which is part muscle and part membrane. And if this diaphragm is pulled, its movability is impaired. In other words, you do not breathe as much as you could with the same amount of effort. And if you want to breathe much, it takes you more effort. So uh, having an upright spine, and if you try with the back of your hand to actually feel how the small of your back feels, we have an interoceptive impression of how it kind of is, but then sometimes this is not matched by our extraceptive tactile experience. Sometimes there is a gap between what we do and what we feel we're doing. Um, it may come as a surprise. So hold your belly and feel with the back of your hand, the small of your back, and then try moving your pelvis just a little bit, rolling your pelvis a little bit back and filling out that small space in the back. The idea is that your weight goes via your sit bones directly into the chair or into the cushion. Yeah? So you go back as much as you can. And then you move your attention up and you're kind of trying to Open your chest. So, at the risk of feeling awkward, artificial, exaggerated, conceited, whatever your psychological statement may be, just open your chest. Uh, come into the space with that part of your body. Take note what your gaze is doing. Open your eyes for a second, and I would like to suggest your gaze goes straight forward. Uh, 
I've never understood meditation instructions that tell you to look down on the ground. Um, I find this is downright erroneous, misleading, and I can only encourage you to use your gaze, the angle of your gaze, to help opening the space in your neck. That's the third big key area. So we have small of the back to be filled, bronchial upper chest area to be opened, and head so that your gaze is level. If you keep your eyes open for the moment and you just kind of don't focus on anything. I know Theravada meditators, they kind of close their eyes and go into their internal spaces. Uh, let us avoid that for the moment. And try to hover with your attention at the place where you feel inside, you feel the body, you feel your posture. At the same time, you're opening your gaze in such a way that you see the whole room without focusing on anything. See whether you can find that place, feeling inside, seeing outside. It's not a habitual space. It may feel a little awkward because you can't actually disappear inwardly and feel, nor can you really, such is my suggestion, obviously you could, but my suggestion would be that you don't focus outside. You just kind of rest your visual field on the things impartially, just impartial, wide open awareness. At the same time you feel your posture, you feel where your weight goes, you feel the sensations of your body, you feel the degree of wakefulness that is present, vitality that is energetically available. You try to rest on the threshold between inside and outside. Rather than disappearing by closing your eyes and going inside, you try to hover at that threshold for a moment. Make sure that the field of vision on one side is as big as it is on the other side. If you notice discrepancies, try to gently adjust or just take note of the discrepancy. Some things we can just adjust and some things, well, we can't. Okay. So be curious. This strange place between inside and outside, between seeing and feeling, can I be there? Is this strenuous? Is this pleasant? Does it go against the grain? It's a possibility, isn't it? I don't have to forsake feeling for, for seeing. I can see without fixating. If I notice that my eyes clutch something, I can release, widen the gaze, soften the gaze. Imagine as if your eyes are resting on the things rather than reaching out to get things. It's just resting. Good, let's rub our faces for a moment. And then let's just close our eyes as we're used to. And 
take stock of our inner world. The element of sound is, I think, hard to miss. Let's just see, how can I respond to that sound? Can I lean into this? Let it move through me. Can I feel these sounds in my body? That'd be an interesting one. All these different frequencies. Can I feel these sounds in the body? Why do I feel that steam hammer right now? Which membranes are resonating with that? With the low hum, the traffic hum? Which part of my body resonates with the ventilation? Just turn this into an exercise rather than sitting here and wishing it wouldn't happen which is not exercise, it's called reactivity. And then let's do what we would do with the yoga exercise. We would go to the place where we meet resistance and then we would breathe into that space there and try to find comfort in discomfort. You would, we would try to find an island of ease into what seems discomfort into what seems impingement, into what seems resistance. We would go there and breathe into it without pushing, without denying, creating a niche of ease in that which happens and inhabiting that little niche, growing accustomed Growing, in fact, comfortable. Can I lean into that steam hammer? Connecting with the area of body that feels the sound. I kind of breathe into this. You guys are pros. You live in New York. This is not just a little exercise. For you, this is a survival skill. If we don't want to turn our environment into a hostile meditation hindrance, we need to make use of what we find. So let us use this as an embodiment practice. What else do I feel of my body? I feel its posture. What is the dominant physical sensation you experience right now? Weight, maybe? Pressure, maybe? A particular tension? Familiar places, knotted up bits? Or maybe something pleasant? 
a soft belly, the sense of handing over my weight to the mat and to my sitting construction. The familiar shape of a hand on my thigh. Just take stock. What do you feel of yourself right now? We've started with the most dominant of sensation. But there may be other sensations less dominant. We can choose where attention goes. We're not condemned to only attend to the loudest type of experience. So even though there is a soundscape, we can actually attend to the felt bodyscape. How big is that bodyscape right now? Besides having tangible individual sensations, do I have a a sense of the space this body occupies. The circumference of a hand. The volume of a torso. The length of a thigh. Can I actually get a felt experience of the space, of the volume? this body takes right now. Consider, try out. Then let us look out for the rhythmical experience of the breath pulse, the coming and going in the body. Not so much of the breath, but actually of the sensations connected with breathing. Just a gentle widening of the belly. If that is where you can easily join the sensations connected with breathing. Or maybe the widening of your chest and slight collapse of your chest on breathing out. Maybe the inflow and the outflow of air at your nostrils. The very subtle degree of difference in the temperature when you breathe in and when you breathe out. Those would be three fairly classical areas where one can pay attention to one's breathing experience. Try out which one works best for you. Best in this case means which one is most easily discernible.
If my mind strays away, wanders off into past and future, either into reactiveness to what I feel right now with my external senses, the sounds, the presence of other people, Akinjana's voice, What is stuff that comes up from inside? Whatever that is, when my mind strays away from the to this, goes out or goes in into storying my life. Whenever I notice this, I make a deal with myself, or in fact, you make this deal with yourself now. Did you return to the anchor of your breathing sensation, wherever you choose, belly, chest, nose? So whenever you find yourself elsewhere, you go back to that anchor. This is the deal. So plan A is your anchor, staying with the sensations connected with breathing in a, as undivided way as possible. Plan B, when I slip away, when my mind veers off this exercise, Plan B states that I bring it back. I choose to return attentional focus. Back to my anchor. And I do that as many times as it takes. I do that without passing judgment. That's where the non-judgmental bit from last night in John's famous definition comes in. It comes in not that I am not judging what is happening, I am not judging myself in what is happening. That's the important bit. So let us practice plan A, my attentional focus connected on a breathing sensation in your preferred area of the body. And we're speaking of feeling, we're not speaking of observing feeling the body in the body. Plan B, whenever I notice I'm doing something else, I go back to plan A. Let's do that for a moment. Please acknowledge your posture. Take stock of the key areas, small of your back, opening of the chest, the balancing of your head. Query for a moment whether you have equal amount of weight on both of your buttocks. That your left and your right leg have a comparable amount of experience of pressure and contact with the mat. See whether you can 
be upright and do less effort. The task is not so much holding as the task is alignment. We're seeking alignment. Sensing the balance in our posture. Sensing the equipoise in our posture. Sensing the buoyancy of Our mind, when the body is relaxed, when it has learned how to find ease in whatever state it is in. Learning not to offer more resistance against sensory impingement. It's Aikido, we're getting out of the way rather than karate. You're not blocking in impingement, sound, or felt stuff. Just moving away two, three degrees, offering less resistance. Practicing the virtue called forbearance in Buddhist teaching. Psychologically, we would call it non-reactivity. We're not feeding reactiveness patterns. Not to sound, not to bodily discomfort. Seeking a sensitivity that does not just seek to maximize comfort, but that seeks to maximize the capacity to be with, to hang in with, to sustain. Breath comes and goes, moves parts of the body, and the mind can choose to attend to the stages of these sensations connected with breathing. There's an arising stage. There's an intensification stage. Things increase a little bit. There is a decrease or a tapering off stage. And then there is a disappearing stage. Every event in our experience moves through these stages. So does every breath sensation move through. It appears, it increases, it decreases, and then it disappears again. So without urging you to label this verbally, I would like you to identify these four stages. 
in the experience of your breathing in and your breathing out. If you sense four is too complicated, take it down to two. Arising, disappearing. Arising, disappearing. Think of a sensation not as a point. Think of it as a stretch. And follow the stretch from as early as possible to as late as possible. I know this is intellectually a little insulting if you have spent many years in schools and colleges, but try to give yourself permission to just do this, attending almost tenderly to each individual sensation as it arises when you breathe in and as it tapers off after you've been breathing out. Take stock of where your mind is at right now. Let us recall our tools, the capacity to choose where my attentional focus rests, the encouragement to let it rest in the embodied, in the somatic quality of my experience, more precisely to let it rest and gently attend to the course of a sensation connected to the breathing. Simple example would be the, the widening of the belly as I breathe in, the relaxation of the belly as I breathe out. Don't make this too small. Make sure that you're the cone of your attentional light is maybe the size of a hand so that you can experience attention resting gently being placed on things resting on that process connecting with the arising the intensification the decrease and the disappearance that's plan A. Plan B is the other part of my tool, tool set. It's when I know that my attention has strayed from this exercise, I bring it back to the body, to the breath and the sensations coming from that breathing process. When I bring back the attention, I do not pass judgment. I'm speaking gently to myself. At the same time, I don't just sit there and wait till my thoughts stop so that I can continue meditating. The thoughts will never stop on their own accord. You need to choose letting the thoughts go and bringing the attention to the body. This is plan B. 
I do that as effectively as I can and as gently as I can. What if there was no problem to solve? What if I could just give myself permission to attend to breath as it arises, as it passes away? What if I didn't have an alternative program for things I need to figure out, stop from happening, produce. What if I could just sit here, breathe and feel and know that I'm breathing? What if this was enough? What if this was a transformative exercise? If I keep doing this, something shifts in a way I can never produce a shift through effort or through thinking or through reason for that matter. What if in the midst of my seemingly reactive mind there was much, much health at work if I only let it happen? What if this mind actually wants to be free, wants to become still, wants to grow? So good. Um, for those of you who've been here yesterday, um, my attempt to contextualize something of the teaching of sati, of mindfulness, in <clears throat> on a background of early Buddhist teaching, <clears throat> and instead of torturing you with contexts and definitions which sometimes makes makes sense and even is fun, I thought of looking at some of the imagery in which mindfulness is spoken of in the sutta discourses. Because images sometimes travel more easily across cultures and across languages. Uh, you know, definitions only make sense if you have good terms and if we have agreement on what these terms mean and Many of the agreements don't actually hinge on the precision of the term, but it hinges on the context in which a term is found. So many things can go wrong. But images are a lot more straightforward. They talk to another part of our brain. So let us look how sati is envisioned in early Buddhist similes and discourses. Um, a very stark image is the image of a man 
having to walk through a crowd of people and while walking through that crowd of people of balancing a bowl brimful with oil and behind our man walks another one with a drawn sword threatening to lop his head at the first shed drop. This slightly punitive image uh, is exacerbated by the fact that the crowd has assembled to see the bell of the country dance and sing. So we can uh, assume a disinterested crowd, uh, focused, maybe even with slightly ledgerous looks, uh, very object-focused, and our man to have not many friends in his trying to save his life. Yeah. So this is an image the Buddha uses, and he asks his monk, what do you think, monks? Would our man, at peril of losing his life, allow himself to be negligent in mindfulness of the body while he walks through a crowd, a man drawing with a drawn sword behind him, and the task to not have one single drop of that bowl full of oil on his head to be shed? And, you know, three times you can guess what his monks answer. Say, no, no, he would, he would be, you know, at, to, to, to his best attempts, he would be mindful of all of the movements of his body. He would try to be highly vigilant of his surroundings. He would try to anticipate these people who are focused on something completely different. And he needs to uh, look out not just what actually his body is doing, but also what other bodies are doing and take, um, make predictive statements as to which, why, which way he needs to, to dodge uh, potential uh, movers. So I think this is a very stark image. You know? so, let's just assume, you know, you're sitting here and you're slightly off in your posture, maybe a little dozy, maybe a little tense, maybe a little restless, and the idea of somebody behind you lopping your head off at the first, you know, wrong move is a fairly sort of... I'm not sure whether it leads to a dispassionate, relaxed attitude, you know, but it sure would lead to a highly circumspect hypervigilance, isn't it? So there are aspects of practice. My first Zen days started in the Zoto Zen tradition, and I was part of a movement which was passionately into beating each other up with the stick of awakening. So huge, big sessions, 150 people. And, you know, 10 minutes into the sit, it would start. You, he you would hear the wax of the kiyosaku, and it wouldn't stop until the sitting was over. In fact, I was quite fond of this. I, I quite liked to be beaten, to be honest. You know, it was quite, it was a lot more easy to be beaten than to be sitting with restlessness, with boredom, with sleepiness. You just kind of waited till you heard the swoosh of the uh, chikijitsu behind you, the guy who does this sort of thing. And then you would make your little gasho, and then he, he would place his kyosaku on one shoulder, and he would put your head on the other side, and then he would give you two nice whacks. Yeah? And if he was good, he would generally hit the shihatsu points up here on the shore. And, you know, with one little hit, you were basically alive for the next 20 minutes, you know, because you could feel that right down into your toe if he was good. If he wasn't good, he would hit your bone, which you would also be alive in an other way. 
or if it was a, t a timid woman who was new on the job, you know, um, who might not have had the same masculine conditioning, how okay it is to hit people with sticks, <coughs> then you might not get the same out. But they learned quickly, you know, because it was a rotating duty, which was very nice. It was very unisex duty, so they really became good. Um, and then you didn't have to cope with sleepiness, restlessness, boredom. You just asked for a little hit, and then you were totally ablaze for the next 20 minutes, and all was well. So when I started practicing Vipassana, it was a lot tougher. These guys didn't talk. They, they sat for an hour. No hits, you know. You were just let, left to go to sleep if you were falling off your perch. Yeah? They compassionately just didn't help you. You were left there to struggle alone with various, you know, states of mind above and below the waterline. So this is quite um, a powerful experience. And uh, the idea, you know, you know, you're not just, sometimes you ask for this. And sometimes when you don't ask for this, the guy decides that you should have it. Yeah, so it wasn't just one way the way it was played in that tradition. He could come, if he felt you were off, the, off beam too much, he would, he would come and place the stick there and just tell you, I'm coming now. Yeah. So there was a certain alertness when you heard the swoosh behind you. There was a certain alertness coming into your mind. Uh, I, I have some doubts whether this is really a very sustainable type of generating mindfulness, personally. I have come to mistrust this a little bit, but I, it has left a, you know, a mark in my mind as a, a sense of vigilance. Uh, that would be the psychological term. Which is a, vigilance is a kind of attentiveness with, uh, what do you call that in algebra, if you have a minus in front of it? A negative value. Yeah? It's, vigilance is when you expect things to happen that are of a not good kind. Yeah? So it's when you expect trouble. You skim the horizon for possible indications that the trouble breaks loose. So it's a very lopsided type of mindfulness. Um, sometimes it's not so much a problem in English because you have this wonderful term mindfulness which has been saturated with Buddhist meaning. But in other languages, in German, you use a very old-fashioned word called achtsamkeit, which means basically something like prudence and care and circumspection. And technically, nobody really knows what it means, but we all know the opposite, which means something like inattentiveness or negligence. So um, much of the German notion of Achtsamkeit is actually infused by being the opposite of something very well known, which is associated with sloppiness, negligence, inattentiveness. In other words, it means... If you just think mindfulness is the opposite of inattentiveness, then you just kind of go into a control mode. So you begin to control your experience, control your posture, control your mind, control your senses. And unfortunately, some of Buddhist teaching can be used to convey that impression. And the last thing you want to do with Germans is encourage them to go into further control modes and <laughs> glorify that as spiritual practice. You know, this is, this is generally not what what we need. You know? So, 
You're blessed with your language, with this wonderful term mindfulness, which is a serendipitous finding uh, of, uh, I think, Rhys Davies coined it. So mindfulness has other images than the image I just gave you. One famous image connects mindfulness with things we would expect. A person sitting on an ox cart and overlooking the road, overlooking the cart, overlooking the landscape, yeah? giving us a sense of a sort of panoramic open awareness position and with that position he kind of things are decked out and our charioteer has a good view of things you know sort of an impartial notion of open panoramic awareness which is easily understandable but then there are other images which don't quite fit the bill so a very famous image is somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya where uh, mindfulness is likened to a post that is rammed in the earth. And roped to that post are six wild animals. A jackal, a dog, a bird, a crocodile. Uh, jackal, dog, bird, crocodile. Um, God forgot the rest. No, no, not a tiger. Monkey, thank you. Thank you, monkey. And these animals roped together, they all pull away and want to go into their respective domains. So the crocodile wants to go to the water. The jackal wants to go to the jungle ground. The monkey wants to go to the forest. The bird wants to fly up in the air. And the dog wants to go to the village. And these animals cannot do that. They're all wild and restless and pull all in different directions. Yeah. If then the simile is, a, is a juxtaposing these animals just being roped to each other is one image. And they just, the strong ones just pull them all away. Yeah. Um, and the other image is the animals are roped to a post. And then the post is likened to sati. So because the post doesn't move, the animals all pull, but they can't get away. And then they become a little tired and a little more docile and a little more peaceful. And finally, they just sit down and then lie down and behave. And sati, the animals are, are uh, in analogy to our six senses. Yeah? So all of these six animals are likened to our sensory uh, channels. For Westerners, it's important to remember channel six is the mind channel. It's the mind in Buddhist psychology is, amongst other things, also a sense organ. So as the tongue experience tastes and chooses, the mind as objects experiences thoughts and images and concepts. So these six animals are likened to our six senses and the pacification of these senses takes place through the power of sati to remain stable. Yeah. This is a very crucial part in the function of sati to help calm and deep stillness. Yeah. Sati has, the wonder of sati is, uh, lies in the fact that it can be developed in many directions. It's, it's a little gem with many facets. Uh, depending on which facet you develop, you get more insight or you get more stillness. You get more relational skills or you get more introspective skills. So sati in this case is clearly in the role of stability as is needed for stillness. And it's quite a powerful image, just a post who doesn't budge, who is anchoring, who is grounding, who is centering. 
Another image which is not so well known is the image of Sati being likened to the probe of a wound surgeon. So a wound surgeon gets delivered a person with an arrow wound. Shaft of the arrow is broken off. The person has an arrowhead stuck in his body. And the entry of the wound is relatively small. And the surgeon doesn't know how deep the arrowhead is, how, what shape it has, uh, what contours. No, knows nothing of this. And to find this out, he uses a probe to insert, this is painful, into the wound and get a tactile feedback of the position, the shape, and the contours of the arrowhead so that he can remove that arrowhead minimally invasively and uh, clear out the poison. And sati is likened to that probe. So something that is hard enough to actually give a reliable tactile feedback when you touch it and soft enough to not hurt the person more or to not inflict unnecessary pain on the person. Sati here, very clearly in the function of investigating, inquiring, examining. Yeah? Very almost poignant image. Sati is that which links the known with the yet not known. Yeah? It's the liminal bit. It's the frontier bit. When Sati talks in clear language, you can be sure it's not Sati talking. Sati is pre-verbal. So a very important point. So that image, I think, speaks a lot. Then we have other functions of Sati. Uh, there's two images of a gatekeeper. Once the gatekeeper is standing at the city gate and people coming into town, he looks at, if he knows them, that, and if he knows that they belong to town, he lets them go in. If he doesn't know them, he takes them aside and questions them, what business they have. Yeah? And some he lets in and some he doesn't. So sati is likened to um, protective function that, so the commentary explains is, as the gatekeeper keeps the people who have good reasons to go into the city, lets them go in, and the others he doesn't, sati is like the function that protects the heart and only lets the wholesome stuff in. It only lets the wholesome stimuli in and shields the heart from unwholesome impulses, unwholesome impingements, unwholesome um, forces that may trigger off stuff in our minds that we then need to hold or feel or uh, weather. Which is interesting, isn't it, in the light of the de definition of sati being non-judgmental last night. Remember the famous three-liner? Um, it's actually saying precisely the opposite in the scriptures. Sati is not judgmental, but it's, it is quite discerning. Yeah? It's quite capable of discerning what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. That's an explicitly a function of sati in the Buddhist teaching, that it is capable of discerning the wholesome from the unwholesome. So it's not saying it's happening, I'm just going to attend to it irrespective of its wholesome impact on my system or not. This is a very, very crucial point. If we take the discernment faculty away from sati, we, we, we lose the ethic dimension. 
there's things we do highly attentively that are not necessarily ethical. You can throttle somebody and just look how they turn blue quite attentively. Yeah? The fact that you pay close attention you know, doesn't make this an ethical activity. You can steal things. You can, uh, if you take aim at something, you know, uh, grew up in Switzerland and there had an uncle who was a hunter and he took me out and I practiced all his whole cupboard of rifles I've practiced with. Generally on Coca-Cola cans in the quarry rather than on animals but you know taking aim at something is an activity that makes that demands high skill of attention you need to feel your body you need to tune yourself to breathing you need to take aim you need to hold your weapon you know there's there's much that speaks for attentiveness training with guns yeah? which as you probably agree with me has some ethical has some questionable ethics around this isn't it so just because it's dealing with attention and it demands attention and allows you to train attention, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be ethical in a sense of wholesome. So back to our example. The gatekeeper lets the things in, that the people in that he feels belong there or the people who he feels have good reasons. And the others he doesn't let in. The second image speaks of the gatekeeper in a completely different job. He expects messengers. So he waits outside of the city gate, and the messengers come from afar. One of them is called Samata, and the other is called Vipassana, by the way. And they bring their truthful message. And it's important that the truthful message goes to the head of the city, to the governor. And that these messengers don't get lost after a long and arduous trip. That they don't get lost in the small alleyways of the city. And to make sure that this doesn't happen, the gatekeeper accompanies them and escorts them on the most direct way to the governor of the city. Yeah? So Sati is likened to that gatekeeper and is clearly in the job and in the function of efficiency and economy, which is interesting. Sati as the most economical and efficient way to get something done. That's an interesting image. We have images of Sati. Uh, there's a beautiful one of a, of a cowherd boy. Cowherd boy, this, this image has two, two scenes. Scene one, uh, cowherd boy is halfway into the rainy season. That means the fruit in the field adjacent to the to the meadow where the cows are grazing, the field is ripe and the cows want to leave their meadow and run into the field, get at the fruit and destroy the crop, which is what our cowherd boy needs to avoid at all costs. Remember, there's a huge issue between settlers and nomads. And this is the, the ones who move with their herds and the others who start putting up fences. This is an issue that has some history in your country here and it has a history in many, many countries and history of civilization has a lot to say about this. On the whole, the nomads have lost, you know, but it wasn't always so clear. So this image slots into this history and our boy has to prevent the cows running into the ripe fields. So he has to shake his arms, he screams, he has a stick, 
he hits some of these cows, he makes hasty moves, and he does just everything it takes that these cows don't run in the field. This practice is called protection in the scriptures. And it's deemed that this is an important practice. Yeah? Although it's not elegant, it's kind of muscular, it's, it's not refined, it has to be done to avoid what he is there to prevent. Second take, same cowherd boy, same cows, but two months later, the field is harvested, the cows are just standing on their meadow grazing, and they're not running anywhere. A boy just lies in the shadow of his shrub, occasionally raising his head, looking over to the cows, and see, my cows are not running away. I don't need to intervene. All I need to know is to know that they're still there, and then I can just leave them graze. I don't need to do much. This practice is called establishing sati. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is, A, the first practice is deemed to be necessary. Yeah. It's not that the second practice is the good one and the first one is a bad one. The first one is as needed as the second one, but the first one has a different name, and the second one tells us something what is meant to establish mindfulness, namely to acknowledge what is happening and if what is happening is good, you don't actually need to go and fix it. You don't need to go over and convince the cows that they should do what they're doing, already doing. You can let it be. So sati here, clearly in the role of um, placid, open, panoramic awareness. There are other images of sati. At some place, sati is likened to salt. So like salt brings out the flavor of food, so salt is said to bring out the characteristic of our experience. Yeah? That's an interesting one. Sati is likened to the minister that does whatever the king wants to be done. So the sati puts itself into the service of whatever the king wants to have uh, performed, applied, executed, implemented. You know, sati, like the... the um, this is a political system slightly different to the um, parliamentary democracy as you're familiar with, but uh, historical Thailand was run in that way. You have a king and then you have his uparaja, which is basically his prime minister. And he's the minister overseeing all the departments. So he's the guy who talks with the king. He's the guy who then looks for the other guys to implement what the king wishes to have implemented. So sati is likened to this position. Um, we have other images. One image, ah, yeah, very nice image. Sati is likened to the plow and to the goad of a plowman. So think of a plowman. This is a very simple structure. The really amazing thing is that if you go to Bihar, India nowadays, you probably will still see such plows. Very simple structures. Things made of wood, maybe with a metal sheet in the part that goes underground. Something where you can put weight on with your feet. And something where you can give direction further up. So a wooden contraption of which one piece goes into the ground, another piece where you can put your foot on to weight the thing, 
and another piece where you can hold on to. So our plowman has one hand on this thing, the other hand he has a goat. With his weight, he applies just enough pressure so that the plow actually goes deep enough to break the earth and make a nice furrow. If he goes too deep, he gets stuck and the thing gets pulled apart. If he doesn't go deep enough, he just scrapes the surface without actually making enough of a furrow. So we could say this is about applied, attuned effort. The other thing is about keeping his oxen straight. It's not enough to just make sure that the plow goes deep enough. You also need to make sure that your oxen go straight. And for that, you need the goat. So it's kind of about choosing appropriate direction, both appropriate attuned effort and appropriate direction are deemed to be functions of sati. And the image says, the plow breaks the earth and sati makes the characteristics of objects of your experience appear in the same way the plow makes the inside of the earth come to the surface. Characteristics are transiency, condition, uh, contingency or conditionality and impersonality. Things we tend to have uh, a few feelings about and are often in partial or wholesale denial about. At the same time, Sati needs to make sure that the oxen are on track because oxen don't always want to go straight. It's an interesting double function of Sati. Huh? Attuned effort and appropriate direction. Sati is likened in an image... Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the image is that of a gourd being thrown into a little rivulet and the gourd drifts away with the current in that little rivulet. Yeah? And sati is said to be precisely not like a gourd you throw into water. It doesn't drift away. It enters into things. Yeah? Sati enters into the object it associates with. It doesn't just drift away on the, associ- on the associated on the associative uh, current. That's quite an interesting image. Let me think. We have another image of a man climbing a tower and overlooking the land. Yeah, so we have quite a few things there, isn't it? Sati as stability, the post. Sati as discernment, the gatekeeper. Sati as providing effectiveness in the second gatekeeper. Sati as the surgeon's probe to investigate, examine, and probe into. Sati as vigilance of the body with the guy with the oil, uh, the bowl of oil on his head. Mm. Sati as the cowherd. Sati as the, you know, who establishes a panoramic awareness. Uh, Sati as the plowman who attunes his effort and gets the direction straight. These are quite some interesting images that tell us something about facets of this psychological function. And you'll be not surprised to hear that we we don't find it easy to find a word that covers all these capacities. And you realize if, uh, if sati becomes mindfulness and mindfulness becomes me observing my thoughts, then, yeah, 
This is not wrong, but, but it's very little of those images, isn't it? We lose a lot if we reduce it to an intervention strategy against cognitive rumination. Well, you know, it's certainly useful to be able to uh, cut back autobiographical rumination uh, because as a major source for depressive uh, mood disorders, which, you know, this is true. It doesn't take a cognitive behavioral scientist to tell me that. One of my teachers, an American monk, used to say, when I want to feel depressed, all I do is I just think a little bit about myself, you know. You know, this is very effective. You just start thinking, me. And then it's useful to have sort of a temporal adverbial, me always, me never. And then you just fill in the blank. Yeah? And, you know, and then you keep doing this for 15 minutes. And after that, you know, your chest will sink a bit and your life will feel like a sequence of failures and missing out constantly right from day one, deprived of, this toy and that toy and your brother was smarter than you or your sister got more affection or you know unfortunately you were the king of the family but only for 16 months and then the twins came or you know <laughs> you know and your life suddenly turns out into one huge continuation of that initial drama there you sit late 50s and you know it's still you still go back into this bottomless disappointment that these twins just take center stage and you're kind of <laughs> the ones they always forget the name of. You know? so, so if we do that, and often we do that because one of the problems uh, is that we're not just experiencing stuff, we're actually having opinions about some of the stuff we experience and in the process of having opinions about some of the stuff that happens, we reify that stuff. Yeah. One particular passion for reification is a character, completely fictional character called I, or me, or self. And the reification of that character is uh, one of our major issues. We have rather strong feelings about him, um, and we construe a history around his character. And this character... <clears throat> apparently un in unchanged ways moved through time you know the, the time si segments i was speaking of last night a huge overwhelming past uh, a little bridge called the present moment and a future that extends on the other side um, anecdotal evidence has it that the younger you are the smaller the past bit is and the more you spend your time thinking about the future and as you grow older the future segment seems to diminish and the past segment, you spend more of your meditative hindrances seem to deal with the past. You know? um, now the truth is that character is not actually solid. While we do quite a bit of selfing and there is a developmental necessity for a self-construct, that self-construct is actually highly volatile, it's highly frail, and it's not solid. And one of the things... One of the reasons why we invest so much time in the construction of that self is because it's precisely not solid. If it was solid, it would take a lot less maintenance than it does take. Yeah. 
So we deep down know this. We don't generally admit this, but we know this. That's why we keep shoring up corroborative evidence for its existence. Yeah, One of the problems and one of the energy consumption of that self is uh, it is construed. It's fictitional. And to maintain a semblance of reality for something that is both constructed and fictitional takes a lot of work. That's why it takes so much of our energy. That's why we're so preoccupied with maintaining this. I mean, there's many dimensions to this. The Buddhist teaching obviously fell into a time when such an individual identity was outright religious statement in Vedic teaching under the name of Atman. So an Atman, by definition, is not a wobbly psychological self, but it's a permanently existing soul that moves through time, unchanged, that is perfect, that is happy, that is uh, completely my own, and that is not contingent on further conditions. Now, I would expect most of you not to start from such a point, but we have psychological self-processes, which we uh, have developmental needs to affirm that there is enough coherence in our life that it makes sense to develop things. It makes sense to actually risk learning things. It makes sense to um, grow relationships, even though they may disappoint, even though people die, even if they don't disappoint, they die on you, or they go away, they move away, or So we need to learn how to hold enough stability, hopefully with a little bit of parental support, that it makes sense that we start to develop skills, build relationship in the face of a world that changes underneath our senses. So there's a little confusion there, part of Buddhist teaching that seems to be geared to counteract a false ideology of a solid soul sometimes is being used to address the issues of attachment we have to a psychological self and some things can go wrong in the translation of psychology in the translation of Buddhist teaching into a a time that thinks in psychological terms however Buddhist teaching has a lot to offer in either domain and the key instrument to help us understand more deeply need and development and contentment and the arising or the conditions of pain and what we can do to minimize and free ourselves from pain and suffering are all hinging on our capacity to have an an available mindfulness. A mindfulness that isn't just observant, but that is relationally competent. I think of mindfulness as basically as an attuned, attentional relationship. It's not a state, it's not a trait, it's both, but it's more than that. It's my willingness, my skill, and my stamina to hold relationship. Hold relationship to an inner or an outer process, an inner and outer situation, an inner or an outer being, person, interlocutor, whatever. And for this, I think it might be useful to ponder some of these images. 
tease out some of the psychological values of these images. At this point, I would have shown you a little slide, but the slide is not really... Um, we don't get it technically together, but let me read you what I would show. I've um, listed a number of facets of sati, which I split in the psychological function, into psychological function and into experiential qualities. So bear with me for a second. I just my my screen has just frozen. This is the uh, demonstration effect, I think it's called. So, psychological function. Imagine a heading: psychological function and experiential quality. So, one psychological function, the straight most straightforward one, is deliberate attention. The word attention is very good at that. It means I can attend to something. I can intentionally move attention to some object. I can ch change the gauge of that attention. I can zoom in or I can be very wide. Attention is one thing that can be aimed, it can be focused, it can be bundled, it can be shifted. You'll be the word does that very well. It speaks very clearly about one aspect of sati, and this is my capacity to direct attention. If I do not make the choice of directing attention, that choice will be made either by other people, there's plenty of people out there who want your attention, who are trained to get your attention, because they know uh, they will never get your money unless they get your attention first. Yeah? So some of our most creative and most gifted people are working in a branch of um, called advertisement, which is a very, very expensive branch. You know, it costs a lot of money to advertise and publicize and promote. And they are paid that good money because it works. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Because if you can get somebody's attention for a subject, for a product for an actual or a perceived lack of something that you then provide a solution for or a comfort or an object of desire, um, you've won a lot. Yeah. Now, there are things that are out there, things like pornography and things like advertisement that are precisely geared not to give you what they pretend, Okay. The kick, both by advertisement and by pornography, is that you don't get what they promise. That's why they work. They get our desire system going. Last night I spoke of the mesolimbic dopamine cycle, which means we can have a lot quicker development in an area of our neurophysiology which deals with incentive expectation or incentive value then we can get development in our department of gratification. Yeah? So the gap between how much I can develop wanting and how much I can develop gratification or enjoyment or feeling good about something is huge. Yeah? And while initially they too may start at the same point, as soon as we continue this, in other words, through repetition, 
the wanting cycle is strengthened. Buddhists would say through habituation. Uh, neurophysiologists would say through basically um, creating more and bigger neural pathways. So the wanting curve goes up and the gratification curve does something like this. Initially it goes up a little bit and then it gradually tapers off. You get less and less gratification when you get what you increasingly want more. You can do that little game in many ways. Uh, One of the really sad ways to do it is that we, as we get older, our desire does not actually decrease. Our capacity to enjoy decreases substantially, but we can actually get more and more fixated on the wanting bit. What we like and what we find gratifying doesn't actually change that much. But our insistence on getting it, our tenacity on wanting, can unfortunately increase. This is really bad for us. This is what Buddhists call the pathos of desire. And if you understand that, you realize that however much, however privileged you are, and I trust you're aware you're the privileged lot, yeah? you have education, you live in a place that is called civilized, you, um, you, know, you have many, many advantages of which you know if you go to some places in the world, you, you will not have this. Um, if we buy into that happiness comes from getting what I want, we have lost. However powerful and however privileged we are, that ideology, ideology is fundamentally flawed. Even if we get what we want, we are not going to be the people who we think we're going to be if we get it. We're going to be somebody else. We're going to be less happy, less content, less satisfied, less gratified than we, than we thought we were. So the, the wanting itself warps our perspective and it is an intrinsic feature of the process of wish and the process of gratification that our gratification always lags behind what we are capable of wanting. Sometimes we don't acknowledge this. We know it anecdotally, but then we tend to think we're making a mistake. It's not the case for other people. It's just unfortunately the case for us. So we individualize this. We personalize it. And generally, we make it as part of our self-construct. I just have an incapacity to really enjoy what I get. You know, I've worked hard for it. And, but for other people, it's probably working. It's just my personal little hang-up, a little congenital inability to pr- truly be there for when it happens, truly appreciate, yeah, it's good, fair enough, it is nice. Uh, I've worked hard for it. I should enjoy it more. Somehow, something in me prevents to truly buy into it. And yet, uh, I, ex- I expect that this is my personal little hang-up, you know. For him or for her, it works. So, we do not acknowledge to what extent we are habituated into a type of belief that happiness and gratification are convergent. 
Now, there's good reasons to question that. If you look at the uh, affluent world and some of the amount of suffering and pain that is in the affluent world, if we were so damn happy, why would you have, why would you have to swallow so many antidepressants? Why are our child suicide rates so up? Why, are, why is depression so rampant? Why is our society so unhappy? Where does all the violence come from? You know, why do people struggle with meaninglessness? <laughs> if you, look, you know, there's m- many good reasons to question the simple equation that the more access to good makes people more happy. And I'm not saying the opposite is true. Let's live in some picturesque poverty. Yeah? And that's not what I'm saying at all. Poverty doesn't make people happy one bit. But contentment comes from other things than having the stuff you have desire for and wish for and long for. It's good to have that stuff. It's good to have that stuff. But we're all, if you have the stuff, you will notice it makes you a lot less happy than you thought it would make you happy. And you know what? The longer you have it, the less it's going to make you happy. And the more you're going to spend worrying what happens when you lose it or what, what your kids will do with it or, you know, or what will happen if inflation kicks in or if the Brits are leaving the EU and economy goes down the doldrum or when the Chinese take over the market or, or whatever you know every country has its own fascinating nightmare f- fantasy 10 million Syrians rather than just 1 million Syrians in Germany or, you know Sharia law in Western Europe or you know whatever you know we all have our pet horror fantasies and these horror fantasies are one of the things that deprive us from happiness, even the happiness we have access to, even the gratification, the safety, the comfort, the, the wonders of civilization we have access to can be substantially diminished by increasing preoccupation with fear, anxiety, threat. You know? So sati can help a lot, but it is useful to picture and recall some of the dimensions of sati as they are spoken to us via these images. So stability, one aspect. Inquiring, another aspect. Discernment, another aspect. So let me go down the list. We're still with attention. The next, the, the experiential quality of deliberate attention um, is, in, is simple. You can focus, you can be directed, you can be open you can be sustained, you can be episodical. Yeah, there's different ways attention works. I've always marveled at mothers who kind of have a sort of a scanning attention. Yeah? It's not just about what you see and what you hear. Even silence can be highly suspicious. Yeah? You're sitting with them at the kitchen table talking about some deep Buddhist philosophy and suddenly she goes into sort of a distant say, wait a second, it's too quiet here. I need to go look what they're doing. And, you know, she disappears. And for you, you know, this was finally, things have quietened down. She, you know, we're actually getting into the meat of our discussion. And she, scanning the horizons, not just for noises, but actually also for the ostentatious silences, which sometimes bode bode, uh, not well. So this is a type of attention. There's a peripheral attention. There's a focus attention. If you drive a car, 
This is very different in doing a meditative absorption. If you're doing meditative absorption, you're trying to stabilize attentional focus on appropriate objects, and then you're trying to deepen into this. You can never drive a car with that. Take the ignition key, turn the ignition key, turning, 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 and you're just kind of focusing in. You'll never get anywhere. And even if you do start rolling, it's really dangerous because you're so damn absorbed onto single features that this sort of scanning, floating, panoramic awareness you need to drive a car, you simply don't have. You need to look what's going on on your keyboard. You need to look what's going on on the road. You need to read the signs. You want to know what the kids do on the rear seat. You know, there's, there's a lot of things you need to take into account when you drive. You can't do this with a single focused, absorptive type of mind. It's inherent in this ta- activity that you need a peripheral type of awareness, spatial enough to hold both what's on your speed meter and what's on the, the road signs. Um, and you need to handle priorities. You need to have something floating happening. Otherwise, this never works. You, you're not a safe driver. Or you don't know what's happening with the kids. Um, so this is attention. It can be open, focused, directed, undirected. You can set it adrift and see where does it go. Or you can give it a task. Generally, <clears throat> neuropsychiatry makes some very interesting distinctions and speaks of um, default network mode is where we go to when we don't have task-focused application of attention. So this default network mode is an interesting place. It's, It's ruminating. It warms up stuff from the past. It does diffuse planning. It's not task oriented. And in this moment, mode, sometimes we we come up with ideas. Sometimes we prepare for the future. Some of our creativity comes out of this. But also, unfortunately, rather reified patterns around our self-construct come up in that mode. So in that mode, we're very prone to, say, depression. We're prone to worry, anxiety, um, fearful apprehension of future. The use of this is very limited, as far as we know so far. And for meditators, it is a highly unproductive state. I just keep warming up stuff I know about myself. I keep warming up memories. I keep prolonging memories from my archive banks into the future, assuming both that the future will develop along lines I know from the past, and assuming that I will stay the guy who I think I am. Which the truth is that I'm not even the guy who I think I am, and I'm certainly not going to stay that guy. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm not really interested in staying that guy, because I have a really lot of bad things to say about him. You know, the lowdown on this character uh, is is not good. You know, I I could say much about him. And uh, um, I, I have him an immense amount of information about this character. I can tell you a lot what he did wrong, uh, about his hang-ups, about his, you know. There's nobody out there who knows as much bad stuff about myself than I do. 
even my closest people don't really have the amount of information about me I have. And if that is the basis of my notion of who's making all these subjective experiences, and if that is the character who is being prolonged into the future, frankly, I'm not interested in even a, an improved version of this character. <laughs> yeah. my, my vision of practice absolutely necessitates the possibility that I don't have to be this guy. Even a successful version of this guy holds very little attract incentive value. <laughs> a version that gets older <laughs> and st starts crumbling away <laughs> and starts lo losing what little plot he may have acquired <laughs> is not attractive, you know. So my notion of this as the protagonist being prolonged into the future is really not a very promising sort of prospect. So let me look at other facets of mindfulness. One facet is called vigilance. Mobile, scanning, awake, observant. Something in me that is prepared to cope with stuff I can't plan, I can't predict, I can't foresee. If that is not there, then I'm very rigid. I'm very lost. There is an English uh, military piece of intelligence which says, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah. Um, this is interesting. Um, I heard Mike Tyson's version of this. He says, you know, we all make plans and then we get hit in the face. <laughs> yeah, which translates some part of this neat British military intelligence piece into some very hands-on reality, isn't it? We all have our plans, and then choreography, life has its own choreography, and things happen. And vigilance is what helps us cope with the gap there, what helps us cope with the decalage, the, the uh, help. Thank you, the discrepancy between plan and what actually takes place. And I'm kind of thrown out of my tree. I am, I think you, you call it discombobulated, I learned. You know? yeah. Vigilance is what helps me cope. It's not necessarily a happy state, but it helps me stay awake, stay on the ball, and stay capable of responding to things I didn't foresee. Another major feature of mindfulness is resonance. I'm capable of resonating with what's taking place. I'm not just cognitively twigging things out there. Yeah. I'm actually resonating from an affective plane. I can, in illustrative ways, put myself into the position of another. Yeah. That's a powerful feature of human experience. In fact, it underpins all of our learning. It's something that needs to be developed, and I need other human beings for this. Empathy is learned. We're not automatically doing this. You need people who are empathetic with you. When you start getting empathetic, I need help from people doing this. And once I have learned doing this, I need others to keep practicing this because I lose it. It's like speech or mindfulness for that matter. It's something that needs learning. 
I can only learn it from others. I, they have to model this for me. Empathy, speech, mindfulness, all the same. They have to model this. I need mindful people. I need to know how this looks and feels at the receiving end when they do it. Then it's useful if they help me doing it. If they give you know, good didactic and pedagogical advice and support my uh, fumbling ways into this. If they're empowering, if they're encouraging, if they give me good uh, hints. That's the second stage where I need others. And finally, I need others to practice this with lifelong practice of empathy, lifelong practice of mindfulness, lifelong practice of speech, communication, exchange, creating cognitive models of experience, this kind of thing. And if I don't do this, I lose it. So we need others. And empathy is that which makes us understand others, connect with others, care for others, feel met by others, and receive others in our lives. So the Buddha's notion of empathy is very simple. It's, it's called Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka, the paradigms of the four Brahmavihara, the four immeasurable qualities, which uh, are not just meditation objects or are not just states of mind. They're beautiful. If you have them as states of mind, great. But actually, you can have metta even if you feel grumpy. You know? As a practice, metta doesn't entail you feeling effusively loving. It entails that you have understood the power of a wish and you're capable of accessing a paradigm of a wish of friendliness, even if you feel not friendly. Metta practice will bring you to a lot of spaces where you do not feel friendly. It's, it takes you where, where it says, not her. You know? One billion Chinese I'm effusively loving for. Out there, I never meet them. Out there, mainland China, there they live. I have all loving kindness for them. But not her. Yeah. She who is here every day of my life. No way. Your metta takes you to that spot. While trying to be loving to all beings, you find that the Chinese are a lot easier than her. Yeah. And you realize this is taking place in your heart. And while you may not meet the Africans or the Chinese or the Swiss out there, you actually are with her. And there's something in you that says no. And that's where you met, met that practice takes you to. And you realize the pain of this. And you realize the poignancy of this. You realize what you lose. And you realize maybe even what she loses. And you realize how unnecessary it is. And by acknowledging both the pain and the unnecessariness of this, you begin to open up to the possibility that, that that doesn't need to be that way. Or you begin at least to in, be interested in what makes it that way, rather than just saying, I am right, I am right. That's what happens when you're angry, isn't it? It doesn't say, now, Akinjana, you know, you're about to enter into the stage called anger. Yeah. That's not what my mind says when I get angry. My mind says, I am right. Yeah. She's wrong. I'm not angry. Yeah. I have reasons. She's doing it again. <laughs> yeah. 
the meta practice may make it obvious to you that something in you is holding a construct and that construct to corroborate its solidity, its validity, its existence insists that certain things are right and certain things are wrong and of the wrong things she is one. Yeah? And that gets in the way of me feeling connected. That gets in the way of me being soft and open and permeable and caring. So empathy or empathetic resonance is one crucial aspect of mindfulness. Having access to the paradigms of uh, friendliness, of compassion, of joy, and of a relational equanimity is a necessary ingredient of mindfulness. Another dimension often forgotten of mindfulness is the capacity to recollect. In other words, Mindfulness is capable of bringing something back that we agreed was important, but somehow we have lost. So if you notice that your mind has wandered, that which notices that your mind has wandered is already mindfulness. If you're really lost, you don't even notice that. Next moment of consciousness, if he rings the bell. So... The capacity to bring something back, the very old meaning of the, uh, the Vedic notion of smrti, that's how sati was called in the Vedic notion, because you remember Buddhists didn't invent mindfulness. Uh, it was there, it's spoken of before the Buddhists. The smrtis uh, are a collection of teachings. Vedic tradition had two brands of teaching. One collection was the shrutis, that's what you heard, immediately from your teacher, and you would learn by heart and then convey to your disciple. And you have the smrtis, which is not stuff you were directly responsible. You haven't directly heard it or been entrusted this teaching, but you know it's part of the collection of teaching. So it's a little less important. So the smrti were that which was generally born in mind. And the shrutis would be that which you directly heard. So this meaning of Bearing something in mind is the old meaning that connects sati with memory. In about half of the instances in Pali discourses, the term sati is connected with its recollection faculty. So practicing buddhanusati means you recall the qualities of a Buddha as a topic of inspiration and as a way of brightening your mind, for example. So in Ananda the famous supporter of the Buddha for over 25 years, or 23 years, I believe, was reported to be the man of the best memory, the man who has heard much and knows much. He is used as somebody who has a lot of sati. The capacity to know and remember what has been said or done in the past is likened to sati. So there's a dimension of sati that is connected with memory and with recollection. The Abhidharma teachings have given sati a lot of this function. The suttas then do something very interesting. They take the old Vedic notion of the term, which runs as an undercurrent, but then they psychologize the meaning of sati, and sati does something very, very different. It becomes the basis of the Satipatthana teachings, the establishments of mindfulness as we know them. This is the famous bit of mindfulness here in the West, which is not 
connected with memory. It's not a mnemonic technique. It is about the capacity to attend to the present moment. But there is a strand of sati that has to do with bringing the mind back to something that has been there but has been lost in the meantime. Like recalling your meditation object. Recalling that you're doing something that is unhealthy right now or that is a bad habit or that you wanted to let go of and you suddenly find yourself doing it again. So sati is that which brings you back to the position that this moves from back into center stage. Another dimension of sati is just plain awareness. I use awareness for the spatial dimension of mindfulness. More about this this afternoon. But one aspect is attentional, and it's the capacity to stay with something in time. So there's a temporal dimension. Temporal continuity is one aspect of sati. But there is also a spatial stability. That's another aspect of sati. And that facet is most... I believe in English it's best named awareness. It's not something you direct. In my language, you can't direct awareness. You can't focus awareness. You can't make it small or big. In my language, you know, awareness speaks of something that is there. You can at best align yourself with or attune yourself to. It speaks of the spatial You can be aware of what's happening in your heart area or you can be aware of what's happening in an airport terminal or you can be aware of what's happening on the back seat of your car or on your front step. You can designate an area of awareness. The idea of contemplation comes very much from this. Contemplatio is basically a job Roman augurs had. It was an area of sky in which you agreed upon to look for signs, bird movements, and those movements you would contemplate. And out of these movements, you would predict the future. Instead of Horace Piquet and look at the entrails of animals, which was the other job. Guys were looking at bird movements. Guys were looking at the guts of other things. Uh, and later, when this uh, was taken over, the notion of a temple, templum was taken from the area of sky into an area of actually consecrated ground, then built. So the temple became the area that was sanctified, like the area of sky was sanctified, which you were looking out for signs. So contemplation means you designate a particular area, which you then enter into a particular sanctified relationship with. It's not bad. Yeah? So that's already there in mindfulness. Another one is an intention. There is no, no, there is no attention without intention. Mindfulness is intentional. It's not God-given. It doesn't just happen. It's a volitional function. Technically, sati is a sankara. belongs to the fourth of the khandhas. So if you have no clue what's happening with with your volitional domain, in other words, where your impulses come from, what triggers them, how to generate them, you will have great difficulty sustaining attentional focus on something if you don't know what's happening with your intentions. Then we have a sati that has to do something with presence. Just an embodied, sensate experience. You're here with all your senses. Um, 
The intentional part is capable, sati is capable of actually acknowledging impulses, acknowledging degrees of wakefulness, uh, knowing about the possibility to apply, say, forces of attention. The present bit has something a lot to do with embodiment. You know, embodiment is a big term, and it basically has the meaning that I experience body both as something from outside. I can see this body. I can touch this body. Sometimes I can smell this body. Um, I can lick my skin and feel the taste that it is salty. So this is the type of exterior experience of my body. Body is an observable, sensory piece of experience. But I also feel the body from inside. My cognition, my perception is embodied. In other words, I experience body also as a milieu for thinking, as a milieu for having emotions. This is a, a double dimension of experience. And when that double dimension is clear, uh, some clever people started calling that embodiment. There's an idea that French philosopher put it beautifully and says, this body is in the world in the same way as the heart is in the body. Yeah. Merleau-Ponty, sometimes halfway into the last century, in his famous Phenomenologie de la Perception, uh, outlines that in a beautiful way, and puts that, brings that really home. We are in this world with these bodies in the same way as our heart is at home in this body. Now, this is a huge issue here, and our environmental issues are the testimony to our philosophical problems on that line. We have made a huge mess on this planet, as you all know, and it's not sure how this is going to turn out. You know? And one of the reasons why we have this mess is because there is an immense problem, particularly in Western philosophy, between... Uh, our understanding, our experience of embodied world, and our thinking about us and about the world. Uh, that split between mind and matter has been the bane of Western philosophy right from the word go in the 6th century BC Greek. Yeah? And it's still not fixed, and we're still paying the price for the problems in thinking on that one. Embodiment is something that is an acknowledgement that such thinking is not real, that we are dependent on this world. Although we can think ourselves apart from creation or from creatures or from biosphere or from evolution, we're actually very much the outcome of this. Yeah? We're not descendants of apes. We are apes. Yeah? There's still a little bit of flinching there. Yeah? We pretend we're basically the thing that stands apart. This is the animal kingdom, and we guys, we've made it outside of the animal kingdom. But that's not quite real, you know. We are embodied. You can't think without a body. The plate of spaghetti looks very different depending how your body feels. When it is hungry body, then spaghetti look a lot more attractive. You can be a lot more dispassionate about spaghetti when you're not hungry. The difference is not your perceptual acuity or your degree of mindfulness. The difference is called hunger. 
So embodiment does justice to that. A thinking that acknowledges that we are embodied, an awareness that is acknowledging that we are embodied, um, has to do with this. So, there's two other aspects. Um, one capacity of mindfulness has to do with adherence. So, a mindfulness that can adhere to certain things, that isn't blown away, that isn't scattered, that isn't pulled off the sledge all the time. The adherence capacity of mindfulness to chosen objects makes this mindfulness a lot more powerful. This is another way of speaking of the temporal continuity of attention. Adhering to a particular topic, you will find that people who are good at things have a, an over-average capacity to adhere to particular performances, tasks, questions, um, activities. All people who are in, rated to be ingenious in something have a, an over-average capacity to adhere to a, a particular problem, maybe, or a piece of art, or you know, they have learned how to free ride a mountain slope, or they have learned how to do calligraphy, or they have learned how to uh, do maths. And they generally have found that fascinating, and they have adhered more extensively to that topic, to that theme. And they have become good at it in some way. If we're not, if we're just flitting off all the time, splitting off, if our attention is highly fragmented and highly episodical, it's very difficult to deeply understand things, to deeply connect with things, to deeply develop skills. A last function of mindfulness I would just simply call investigation. It's the uh, type of, as a psychological quality, what would you call? You could call it experimental inquiry, maybe. It's a performance rather than just a thinking, inferential type of investigation. It's playing with things, deepening into things, messing with things. It's also maybe, you could call it maybe something like um, a type of curiosity, maybe sort of a, an affectionate curiosity. It's a, a way of relating with stuff and inquiring stuff, bearing that you are not an expert, which is increasingly difficult as we get older. Yeah, there's a time when just everything new is a discovery. And as we get older, we seem to think that we should know, and it becomes slightly embarrassing if there are things we, we simply have no clue of. We find it slightly... It's a slight, isn't it? To just be faced with a page of something, you can't even read the script, let alone engage with the meaning. And it seems to be easier when we are young. And it, as we get older and we become good at things, or experts, or people look upon us as having experience... It seems to become more of an intellectual slight to be confronted with something we have obviously no clue of. And it takes some kind of humility to allow ourselves to be clueless, to learn, to become beginners again. That seems to become more difficult as we, as we grow older and make experiences in life. So this is an aspect of mindfulness 
this inquiring, this affectionate curiosity, this capacity to be probing into what is not yet known. So, so deliberate attention, vigilance, resonance, recollection, awareness, intention, presence, adherence, investigations. There is no canonical evidence for this list, just to be clear on you. Take this with the necessary pinch of salt. <laughs> this is my personal attempt to make sense of these images, of the teachings, of uh, sifting through discourses of the Pali. If I want to use psychological language, I think these terms come to mind, and I believe these are genuine facets. And this is probably one of the reasons why you will understand that a mindfulness as defined how I said last night, uh, I feel is a little bit of a letdown. And I trust that the man who is blamed for this definition uh, feels also, uh, since I know him and since I have no doubt in the integrity of his work and his vision of practice. But, you know, as the day is long and we all talk and write and say things, and if you fish it out of context and keep quoting it ad nauseum and reducing my whole life's work to one particular soundbite, um, you know, this, this could have happened to any one of us. You could do that with what I say. So I'm conscious. I'm not holding it against him. I'm holding it against a world that loves things to be simpler than they are. Yeah. So enough of me. Let's uh, see whether I can respond to questions for a few moments. Yeah, please. Uh, there is a microphone, and it would be good if you. It's not just about your voice and your loudness. It's also about the record. Could you just? Uh, how do you pronounce your name? Akinchino. Akinchino. Yeah. And is it is that Thai? It's Pali. Pali, and what what does it mean? Um, it's a poetic expression. Uh, it's the opposite of something. Let's. Akinchino. Literally, okay. it means not anything. Okay. okay. Thank you. <laughs> that was already the question? Yeah. Yeah, I, oh, I've good. I like this, but it's an easy question. <laughs> okay. Hello. Uh, thank oh, you for the yeah. great talk. Uh, I have a question about, um, you know, mindfulness practice in regular life. So once you discern between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts, then does it my, the role of mindfulness stops there or how it influences action? Well, the first one, it knows wholesome stuff from unwholesome stuff. Yeah? So it also should be interested in that type of discernment. Now, this, see, the non-judgmental bit about mindfulness is important insofar as it is not judging to give attention only to pleasant things and judge unpleasant things not worthy of attention. That's what we habitually do. So mindfulness being non-judgmental should be understood that it doesn't judge the value of me attending to something on the basis of being pleasant or being unpleasant. That's where non-judgmental is great. But it doesn't mean that mindfulness is incapable of discerning what is useful or wholesome or edifying and what is doing the opposite, what gives rise to fear, greed, 
aversion and confusion. That type of discernment is something we should maintain and actually cultivate. Yeah, my question is actually once you decide between, once you see that a particular thing is unwholesome, then the next step is you're acting or not acting on that. So are we going to use another set of tools to... Well, you see, that's where mindfulness alone does not do the job. Yeah, Mindfulness is deemed to be instrumental in something called emancipatory effort. So such effort can look uh, like abstention. If the impulse is unwholesome and you've known its impulse as unwholesome and you know what it feels like when you follow this impulse and you have reason to believe that it doesn't make you happy, uh, then the emancipatory effort would be how can I acknowledge this impulse without consenting to it? Is it possible to leave that impulse in the inner psychological space without acting on it through speech or action or focused attention or focused intention? Yeah. Maybe the acknowledgement is this needs counteracting not by abstention but by cultivating its opposite. You know, sometimes we can't just refrain that we need to actually cultivate it's not enough to not be grumpy you know you actually need to cultivate friendliness or generosity or welcoming states of mind appreciative states of mind states of gratitude you know you don't get that just by not being grumpy Um, otherwise you get sort of a notion of the mental health system yeah if you don't have any pathology what remains is health which is somewhat naive, yeah? And that's what mental health system around the world seem to be doing. Uh, other than distributing money, they seem to assume that health is what remains if you, have, if you have no afflictions going. But we all know that you can strengthen systems. Even rather than just troubleshoot problems, you can actually strengthen systems by, being, by making them more resilient or by making them more capable of uh, homeostatic power or appreciative valuing the good stuff. And we all suffer from what neuropsychiatry calls negative perceptual bias. We deem that stuff that is bad somehow is more real than stuff that is good. Which makes sense in terms of evolution. You eat bad mushrooms, you survive the experience just about... Uh, you're likely to remember what kind of mushrooms these were. You're likely to tell your kids. You're likely to take heed of warning signs, things like that. So you forget the hundred times you ate good mushrooms and you remember the bad mushrooms very clearly, which in terms of evolution makes sense. yeah. But in terms of happiness, doesn't make sense. Weighing the bad experience more than 100 good experiences really doesn't make sense in terms of happiness. It makes sense in terms of survival of the species. If you want to avoid bad mushrooms, make sure that the memory of bad mushroom survived sticks to the memory. That makes maybe the purpose of evolution is not to make us happy or free. You know, if you want to attribute purpose to evolution, which is already a very suspicious undertaking, um, then we have to probably acknowledge 
that its purpose is not about freedom and happiness, that some of the things that make us free and happy are not necessarily the same as the things that make us survive and populate this planet in ever-numerous ways. Uh, and it means you, you need to make distinctions there. And th those distinctions are about value. And whatever science is going to fix, they're never going to fix values. We will have to make value judgments. And these value judgments need to be on the basis of something we know about ourselves and we know about what is meaningful in our lives and what helps the people who are meaningful to us. And this discernment on the basis of mindfulness is good. If that discernment isn't there, it seems as if I each in experience is of equal value. And I don't have to prioritize stuff. I don't have to address needs. It means if I would live forever, I could maybe do that. But since I don't live forever, I need to make choices. And these choices are best made on the basis of my understanding what is wholesome, salubrious, and what is not. Uh, is this an answer? Yeah. So abstention would be one consequence. Active bringing into being would be another consequence. Strengthening would be a consequence if it is useful. And weakening, finding out how I can weaken something if it is not useful would be another consequence to give you the classical form. Yeah. Can the microphone go over to, I forgot your name. Michael, yeah, thank you. This uh, distinction you make between attention and awareness yeah. is interesting. Uh, in in uh, certain fields of psychotherapy, the two are very confused with each other. So We've uh, had this discussion. You remember? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a long yes. Yeah. Uh, but they somewhat blur into each other. And I was wondering, you, you were implying that attention has intentionality? Yeah. That awareness is more attunement? Well, this is my way of using the term. And in fact, I told you uh, last year that I feel corroborated in that distinction by somebody from the field of Gestalt, which well, surprised that, you, I believe. Well, but I was wondering when you said you, you seem to imply one is more spatial, the other more temporal, or no? Well, I make, you know, basically if you train attention you can do so in two ways one of them is you can hang in and allow attention to be longer with events in time so you strengthen the temporal continuity you listen the curve of your listening say increases you can hang in with longer sentences you can understand more complex melodic structures. You uh, are willing to stay with the breath till it tapers off from a more fine point. The other big area in which you can train attention is by making it spatially more stable. Yeah. And for the latter part, I think the English term awareness is better. That, but then the that has attention. some intentionality in it. For example, when you spoke of awareness as spatial and a kind of attunement, but then you said you could be aware of 
what you're experiencing in your heart, that seems to be directing your awareness. You yeah, but it's a, it's a spatial locus there, isn't it? Yeah. It's a little tricky right there. Uh, are you, you're saying you're using the terms differently. Well, I think, uh, I think of, I mean, what, what uh, you were saying that makes a lot of sense to me is attention has intentionality. Yeah. You can direct it, yeah. you can sustain it, you can do a lot of things with it. Awareness is more a sense of staying with what is and attuning yourself or resonating to it. But when you spoke of saying being aware, you can become aware of what's in your heart, then it blurs a little, doesn't it? About what's being directed and what's well, not. Well, let's remember, mindfulness is going to be an intentional quality, irrespective whether it's in its temporal form or its spatial form. Intention is going to be in there somewhere. Yeah. You can't take that out. It's just that the, the term attention seems to speak more specifically to the directive possibility you have. Yeah. say involuntary attention and awareness seems to be more something that you don't direct space isn't it you can delimit say a big space or a small space but once you have found that space and if you're aware of that space you don't point yeah. you're, it's more receptive isn't it that's how it feels to me but I admit this is personal. I'm just trying to tease these facets out because I know that they're in mindfulness. Yeah. I hope to say more about this this afternoon. There's different models of how development takes place and it may be worth looking at some of these models because they have something to do with how mindfulness works. Yeah. So I hope this is, continues our discussion. No, no, I, I like it. I think it has important clinical implications yeah. also. Yeah, yeah very much. Good. There was a question over there. Um, my understanding of mindfulness, just personal understanding, is um, that it's um, kind of a mirroring activity of a mother's holding of a baby in that... Um, I think it captures a lot of the aspects that you mentioned, um, including um, intentionality, wholesomeness, uh, kind of the investigative quality, as in uh, when a baby is colicky, uh, you know, there's an investigation to what's going yeah. on and, you know, non-judgmental of sorts. Um, and my question is basically um, when I'm feeling overmatched by fears, um, and things that I find unwholesome, um, you know, what's a meditator to do? And I ask this because um, through meditation, I've been able to um, kind of get down to some of my deeper um, traumas, maybe. And as I kind of go deeper into the recesses, um, the unexplored parts, and coming across um, the fears that I've been running away from all my life, um, I find it harder and harder um, to kind of 
marshal my inner resources. So just wanted to ask if you have thoughts on what might be helpful. Do you have friends? Not many. And of the not many friends that I do have, um, I don't think... I don't think I have a friend that I can uh, freely talk about all of this with. You know, fear modulation triggers most of our learning. Um, We are highly motivated to find ways that help us cope and strategize with fear or against fear because we it's it's a deeply unpleasant experience and it uh, always not just is it unpleasant it also threatens to overwhelm us so you need to look for friends frankly I'm quite serious um, what makes things safer in our lives is people who help us with stuff. Either by being models or by being counselors or by simply being there or by being comforting or by relating to the bits in us which are sane while we are preoccupied with the bits which seem overwhelmed or scared out of their wits. So other human beings as partners and as friends and as therapists and as Kalyana Mittas are really deeply useful. Uh, There are things which are too big to be held on one's own. I've always been privileged with people in my life and I know if I discount their influence and my learning from them, through them, with them, with their help, there's nothing of me left. Yeah. So I don't know. My encouragement would be that you look for people that you find ways to make it safe to be with that bit of yourself in the presence of at least one caring individual or one safe individual or one therapeutic or one loving individual. Yeah. And that you try that out in some realistic ways. Yeah? And look at the patterning that you probably have received that this is not something you can risk doing. I suspect what you describe has a history and I suspect that something in you has decided that fierce independence is the safest way to go about it. And it probably was but it probably is no longer the case. The very situation has changed. Since you have survived, (laughs) your strategy has worked. And maybe it's time to pension it off, you know. Thanking it, thank you very much. This was good. I did the best under those conditions, but the conditions have changed. I could actually envisage adopting another strategy 
and involving some more people. If you're around, come and speak to me in a one-to-one -one if you find a moment, yeah, if you wish. Last one, a light, breezy one, please. <laughs> something, about knee, something about knee pains or so. Hello. The questions about creativity and an intuition, which you what was creativity, creativity and intuition, which you touched on a little bit in one of your answers, and it seems that either have to arise out of sati and mindfulness. But what is the relationship? Can you speak about that? Yeah, you know, both of them are complex mind functions. Yeah, um, both of them. We're not quite straight about, you know. Some of what we think is creativity is just glorified impulsiveness, you yeah? <laughs> And it takes some time to actually discern, discern this, you yeah? um, Intuition is also an interesting source, and it's one of the things we can't produce, isn't it? So sati is much more simple in many ways. But sati helps allowing the permeability of the threshold in our mind that makes possible for the welling up of both creativity and intuition. Particularly intuition is a, is a valid source of understanding, often coming from parts of the mind which are um, reason and left-brain-centered. Uh, rational thinking does not value enough. And sati can help us access this, or just making ourselves more permeable for them. Uh, sati in itself is neither. Yeah? It's much simpler. What you describe, you know, these are more complex, complex functions of mind, more complex uh, activities of mind coalescing various pieces of information, a mixture of immediate input with learned, with experience and coming to some really serendipitous moments of where something coalesces or crystallizes into uh, an image or an understanding or a grasp that is fortuitously accessible at that moment under these conditions and may be there but may not be accessible at other times. Um, the practice of mindfulness helps clear the spaces, you know, rid ourselves of cobwebs, uh, helps stopping us from habituating minds in patterns which are not creative, which are automated, which are uh, discursive, which are uh, rehearsed. Yeah. So if, if you're into intuition and creativity, sati is a very effective tool of actually making these layers of the mind from which these two qualities speak more accessible. Yeah, that's my experience. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Can we extend our break to quarter past two? So, good. Thank you. And uh, please come back. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.